For four years, Otis Birdsong dominated the court in Kansas City as a member of the Kansas City Kings. From 77 through the 1981 season, he was one of the biggest stars in Kansas City. Then signed one of the first million-dollar contracts in the NBA to go to the New Jersey Nets. But Otis Birdsong is now back in Kansas City running the new professional basketball team. Here's my conversation with former Kansas City Kings legend Otis Birdsong. You got college basketball Hall of Famer on your resume. You got Houston Hall of Famer on your resume. Did you ever think when you were growing up as a kid you'd have all of these Halls of Fame that are welcoming you in and saying, man, you're one of us? Never, never thought about that. Um, actually, when you're playing ball, especially in high school, you're just focused on having fun and trying to win a state championship. And uh, I was very fortunate to do that, by the way, my senior year. And that's one of my great, great fondest memories. But you never think about accolades and awards when you're playing. You're just trying to win games and have fun. What's it like when you get that phone call when somebody says, hey, Otis, you're going into the University of Houston Hall of Fame or you're going into the College Basketball Hall of Fame? Because quite honestly, none of us get to experience that. You've got to experience it a couple of times. What's that moment like? Well, it's really special when it's your university because I I really enjoyed my years at the University of Houston. And when you're honored in any way by your university, it's really, really special. And as special as that was being um, one of the distinguished alumni a couple of months ago. They honored me as one of the distinguished alumni at the University of Houston, and that is the highest award you can receive as an alumnus. So, I mean, I was really, really special. But when you get the call, it's almost numbing. You know, when they call me for the uh, College Hall of Fame, my roommate in college is an Italian guy, was an Italian guy, Jim Perry, and we talk all the time. And he kind of put it in perspective for me. He said, Otis, you know, out of all the players that have played college basketball, Division One, Two, Three, Junior College, to go into the College Basketball Hall of Fame is almost more special than going into the Naismith Hall of Fame because so many players have played in college, and to be one of the few who who is going into the Hall of Fame, that's really special. That is a cool way to put it. Like yeah. you, you, you wouldn't normally think about it that way yeah. because there's so many guys from small college basketball up to the big levels of college basketball. To be one of those guys that right. stand out, that that makes you feel good, doesn't it? It's tremendous. I mean, it's a tremendous honor. Um, I don't think it has fully hit me yet. You know, my family, they seem to be more excited than I am. I have, man, it's probably going to be 30 people here this weekend, you know, coming in to see me and see me receive that honor. And it really hasn't fully hit me yet. Uh, it's a great honor, but I'm sure I'll be more excited this weekend. Yeah. I think so. I think once you finally go through the whole thing and you experience it, you see it all, it's got to be pretty cool. And the way that you grew up, too, man, 10 of 12 kids. I mean, you're the 10th of 12 kids. Your dad passed away when you were 8 years old, so you had a strong-willed mother raising all of you you kids. What was childhood like for you? Well, you don't know when you're poor because um, we never went without food. We never went without clothes. Uh, The only thing when I look back that made me know that we didn't have a lot was – um, during Christmas time, you know, you, you got a few toys. You didn't get a lot of toys. And I remember being um, on free lunches my entire 12 years of school. Even as a senior, so-called star basketball player, I got free lunches my senior year. So and my entire family did. So that that's one of the reasons I kind of knew that we didn't have a lot. Plus, we had to work, you know, and my mom was a maid. She didn't have any formal education, so. But it was fun. I mean, we have a close-knit family, a lot of grandkids, almost 90. So um, 
It was a lot of fun. I, I saw that. 90-some grandkids your mother has. What, 93 or something like that? And right. Does she know all their names? <laughs> no. I don't even know all their names. And it's, it's amazing, and, and, and they're still having them, you know, so yeah. uh, it's crazy. I mean, that, that's, that's unbelievable. I'm from a very small family. You're from, like, the biggest family I've ever heard of before. <laughs> I mean, like, that, that's right? just insane, no, it, it really is a lot of kids. What's a family reunion like for you guys? Unbelievable. I mean, just loud, crazy, not enough room. I mean, a lot of food, a lot yeah. of good food. <laughs> I want to know more about your mom because – your, your dad was a preacher. That's not exactly a high-paying job either, you know? And to have 12 kids and then to have him pass away when you're eight years old, we hear these stories now about, like, if, if so-and-so were to lose their job that has just a family of two kids, how would they be able to make ends meet? How did your mom do it, man? Take, t- tell me some of those stories about how your mom was able to do that to keep that family together, to keep you guys moving in the right direction. Well, the easy answer and people will say, well, everyone says that, but um, it was grace and mercy because she didn't have any form of education. I can remember when I was in the ninth grade, my older brother hired a tutor for my mom to learn how to read because my dad having education, he would buy the groceries. He would go grocery shopping. He could read. My mom couldn't read until I was in the ninth grade. So my older brother and older sister, out of 11 of us, I mean, out of 12 of us, 11 of us went to college. Wow. Most graduated from college. The 12th didn't go because she was physically challenged. She, You know, back then they called it mentally retarded. Now they call it physically challenged. Uh-huh. So 11 out of 12 went to college. The majority of them graduated from college. My mom was making $40 a week when I went pro. So it couldn't be that. It couldn't have been her. I mean, I mean, think about it. Now, 12 kids, all of us go to college. Mm-hmm. It's grace and mercy. It's, it's, that's, that's, it's like someone was telling me, oh, this, you a great shooter. I say, look, I didn't do anything. I always had the ability to shoot the ball when I was a little kid. It was a gift. I mean, it, that's an easy answer, and it, people don't want to hear that. Oh, he worked hard. It was a gift. Mm-hmm. I always could shoot the basketball. I really could. And so the same thing with my mom and dad. The Heavenly Father, Yahweh just provided for our family for us to be able to get through that. How much did your mother stress education to you guys? Because obviously it seems like she did if 11 of 12 of you went on and graduated from college. That's the phenomenal thing. My dad must have been hard-pressed or really impressed upon her the importance of education because, I mean, when we bought a bad grade home, she would beat us. But she didn't have any form of education. And to make sure all of us went to college? So somewhere, somehow, she knew the importance of having an education and and I'm glad she did because she was hard. I and, mean, she was serious about school. And and it, it's interesting because people would think, oh, Otis Birdsong, he's a basketball guy. But since you've been done playing, and we'll get to your career because it's pretty spectacular and there's so much to talk about, you've been doing these camps for kids and giving back to kids and, and making sure they have the right message and the right understanding. How much of what your mother taught you about education and all that are you now stressing to kids when you put on these camps for these guys and girls? It is the most important thing. In fact, a quick story. Um, when I was a junior, I was thinking about going hardship because I knew we didn't have a lot and I really wanted to help my family. But mom was more focused on me graduating. She really wanted me to graduate from college. And that's another one of my greatest honors for me mm-hmm. to have a college degree. That is so important. And so when we do these free camps around the country for underserved kids, we're stressing the importance of getting an education first. You know, all of them want to play in the WNBA or the NBA. 
And I'll just be honest with them. You got a better chance of hitting the lottery or getting struck by lightning than becoming a professional athlete. That's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. So we have people from the private sector come come out and speak to the kids each day about health and wellness, financial literacy, the importance of getting a good education, um, safe neighborhoods and bullying and stuff like that. So it's more so the basketball, that's important, yes, but life skills are or even more important to us when we're doing these camps. I think you're starting to see a lot more of that at some of these sports camps, too. You hear more about that, oh, yeah, the sports stuff is great, but we want to teach these kids about life. We want to teach them about the realities of the world out there because I think a lot of times a lot of kids don't get the realities of the world out there, or maybe they don't have somebody like you to look up to at home because they don't have a mom or they don't have a dad. Right, and they don't get it at home, you know, and it starts at home, and that's where we got it. You know, my mom taught us, you know, how to cook, I know how to clean. I clean my own house. I don't, I don't have a maid. I do toilets. I mop, you know, and I know I wash my own clothes. I don't even allow my wife to wash my clothes. I don't allow my I, wife to do mine yeah, either. <laughs> you know, I've been doing it so long. So um, those are the things we want to try and teach these kids about uh, hygiene, brushing your teeth and, and wearing your pants up and not, you know, and all of these tattoos and stuff, you know, just uh, stuff that's important in life. When did that become important to you to give that message back to kids? I think that message um, was always important to me because that's the way I was raised. Um, I had an embarrassing moment in the sixth grade. I hated brushing my teeth. And my favorite teacher came up to me one day before class started and said, Otis, your, your, your teeth and your breath is very offensive. You, you have to do better, you know. And that just broke me down because that was my favorite teacher. But every morning I would brush my teeth for a long time and I would make sure I go up to him or I went up to him before class started and show him my teeth. And that just stuck with me. You know, that's important. You know, I have grandkids mm-hmm. and my little boys, they hate brushing their teeth. And I, I can relate because that's the way I was, you know. And so I, that, that story had an impression on me. I think all kids hate that. Mine do too. Brush your teeth. <laughs> ah, why? You know, yeah. it's like you, you get a fight for the littlest things when they're, my kids are seven and eight, almost eight and nine <laughs> years old. You you get into that, you know, as a kid, you got to fight them to take a shower. Yes. You got to fight yes. them to brush their teeth yes. and all kinds of things right. like that. And those things change, are important. You know? <laughs> that That's not going to change though. That's what kids do. Right. right. That's yeah. exactly what they right. do. So you, you mentioned that, you know, yeah, you work hard, whatever, but it was, it was a gift. And, and, and I, I appreciate you saying that like you because a lot of people go oh it's all about hard work and dedication and you can get to where you want to be and i always go "Mm, that's not true not everybody's born with the same gifts and the same abilities like you were born with when did you realize in your life that man i'm pretty good at this basketball thing maybe i can do something with it well it's funny uh because in florida we grew up the red sox used to spring train in one haven where i grew up so really baseball was the first love and then football and everyone wanted to play baseball, football, and we did growing up. And we didn't integrate the schools in Florida until I was in the ninth grade. The ninth grade is when we integrated the schools in Florida. And so you had all of the white kids who were at the school trying out for the football team, and then all of these black kids who have been bused and, and transferred to this school, this junior high school, trying out for the team. We literally had over 200 kids try out for football. Wow. So the coach said in order to get down to the cut, if you're late to practice, if you miss practice, even if you're hurt, you're going to be off the team. And so I got injured. I severely sprained my ankle the first day of practice, cried like a baby, not because I was hurt, but because I w- he cut me from the team. I never played football again. 
And that's when I really started getting serious about basketball in the ninth grade. And, then it, and it was because I got cut in football from an injury. Yeah. That's an amazing story because yeah. a lot of your successes come from your failures and how you d- deal with failure. So how did you deal with failure when you're in ninth grade? Your dad has already passed away. You're t- 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 one of 12 children running around. How did you deal with that moment? I was devastated because my brother and all of my friends, a lot of them made the team. And to have to go watch that, and you know, basketball season was starting later than football season. And it was hard. It was really hard. And then dealing with the first year of integration, even though my mom had always raised us to treat everybody right and we didn't look at color and stuff, um, that was tough too because um, that was our first time actually being around Caucasians. It really was. I mean, even in the grocery store, you really didn't talk to anyone. You just would go to the grocery store and you get your groceries when you're with your mom and you go home. So that was uh, an adjustment also. But our coach in the ninth grade, he was um, Coach Etridge. He had played college basketball. You know, white guy, tall, about six six, funny, smart, great shooter. When I tell you he could shoot the basketball, he could shoot the basketball. And a lot of fun playing for him. He was an offensive wizard. And so I really, really got excited about playing basketball in the ninth grade, and it was because of him. It's um, foreign to me to hear you talk like that and to, to, to talk about you know not seeing a, a white person before. I remember my dad, who grew up in New Jersey, he remembers the first time he saw an African-American when he was playing mm-hmm. high school football. He, mm-hmm. uh, he looked up and go, I I'd never had seen an African-American kid before. I was like, wow. Like Today, that sounds like such a foreign concept. What was that like with, with having such division between folks because of color? Not that we're perfect at it today because we're not, obviously, mm-hmm. but just growing up in those times and experience and living that and, and, and living through all of that. Well, in the ninth grade, it was interesting because uh, everyone kind of stayed in their own corner. We really, I didn't really have any white friends in the ninth grade. I really didn't. I mean, we didn't come to each other's homes or visit, but it, it changed when we went to high school. Um, we had white friends over to the house all the time and I would go to their home and, and eat and, you know, so it was different, but that was because of my mom. That was the way we were raised. So when I went to the university of Houston, my roommate was an Italian guy that I chose initially it was going to be a black guy, mm-hmm. but he and I hit it off and I knew the way I was raised. I didn't have a problem with it. I was excited about him being my roommate and we're best of friends to this day. How'd but, you end up in Houston, Texas from, from Florida, especially back then where, you know, traveling wasn't, you know, a, a thing that people did all the time. I mean, you, you, you go from Florida to Houston, Texas to play at the university of Houston. How'd that story take place? Well, it was my um, first recruiting trip, but actually the coach, coach Pate who had signed Evan Hayes and Don Chaney and a lot of the great players from Houston, we were playing in a tournament in one park. He didn't come to see me play. He actually came to see another kid who ended up going to North Carolina who really never made it, six, seven white kid. He was he was okay, but he, he never really played in North Carolina. But I that's who he tell me he went on to be Michael Jordan. No, no, no. <laughs> that's who they came to see. Yeah. And at the end of the game, he walked up to me, he gave me a pen and his card, and it said University of Houston. And he started recruiting me. And long story short, with all the schools that I visited, my family and my mom, they trusted him. Uh, they just fell in love with him. He did a great job recruiting. I had seen the game of the century with UCLA and Evan, you know, Evan Hayes and mm-hmm. Kareem or Lou Alcindor. And I had also seen uh, Louis Dunbar, who became a teammate when I played at Houston. 
Bo Lamar, who was leading the nation in scoring at Southwest Louisiana, was playing Houston on national TV. And I saw these big afros and these two guys, they both scored over 30. They were going at it. I'm like, man. And so I had heard about Houston, of course, because of that game. And so they did a great job of recruiting me. And I didn't want to stay in Florida. If I had stayed in Florida, I would have gone to Florida State because they had just gone to the finals and lost to UCLA mm-hmm. with um, those great that great team. And so I wanted to get away, and I chose Houston. Was it a, was it a culture shock for you going to Houston? It really was. Um, when I got on the plane, it was my first time actually flying. And I, when I got off the plane, I was actually looking for cowboys and cows and stuff because <laughs> it was Texas. You know, I didn't yeah, know. Sure. I was Small town, first time away from home, and it was different. It was so big, and I, I was amazed, man. It, it was phenomenal. So were you as culture-shocked when you get drafted by the Kansas City Kings in 1977? Were you expecting to come to, to, to the Kansas City area and see the Yellow Brick Road and Dorothy and all that kind of stuff, like people stereotype? No, because Kansas City had already told me that uh, they were going to draft me, and they also – uh, wanted me to be in Kansas City for draft day. It was the first year that they started inviting players to New York. But I didn't go to New York. Kansas City wanted me to be here so they could have a press conference here. Mm-hmm. And so um, they showed me around the town before uh, the press conference started. They took me out to Raw's Stadium. I got to meet some of the Raw's, Freddie Partek and, and, and some of the other, Frank White. Yep. They were there and I met them before the press conference. So I kind of saw the city. I didn't know it was going to be this cold, of course, but uh, it was cool. Yeah, it it, it is a cool place. So you get drafted by the Kings in 1977, and and, and I saw somewhere that you said Kansas City was your favorite place to play. Why is that? Why was Kansas City your favorite spot? You know, I I look back on it, and, you know, I don't have any regrets. I wouldn't change a thing, but it would have been fun to play my entire career here in Kansas City. I really like the city. But what made it special was Cotton Fitzsimmons. Mm-hmm. Uh, he made it, or he created a family atmosphere on and off the court. And we had a lot of fun. We really cared for each other. In fact, the guys that I am closest to now, uh, Michael Ray Richardson, who I played with in New Jersey, he's just one guy out of all the guys I played with in New Jersey. Well, here in Kansas City, I was close with Sam and Josie, Bill Ford, uh, Scott Wedman, I stay in touch with all those guys. You know, of course, Sam and Joe Seal since passed. But I, I played four years in Kansas City, and I have greater friends from the Kings teams than I did when I played seven years in New Jersey. And so Cotton just made it special. The uh, community, even um, the, the the newspapers, the way they covered us. You know, in when I played in New Jersey and Boston, it was as if they were looking to criticize you, you know, um, they always you you could never do enough in Kansas City. They were fair, you know. If you didn't play well, you were criticized, of course. But it wasn't like a hateful criticism. Mm-hmm. But in the East or on the East Coast, it's more like a hateful criticism, almost as if they're trying to embarrass you. You know, so. you only stayed here for four years and then went on to New Jersey. Why did you decide to make that jump? Was it the money? I wanted to stay here. You did. I wanted. I, I mean, I I. I I signed that big contract, but I was devastated because I knew I would be leaving. I had started looking for a home here even before I signed a new contract with uh, Cleveland and then New Jersey uh, because I wanted to stay here. I was looking for a home, and when when a team offers you <laughs> what 
the guy was offering to to go to Cleveland, I mean, there's no way you can turn it down. I mean, you're talking about five hundred thousand dollars different than what Kansas City was offering, mm-hmm. and Kansas City was offering a lot of money. I'm not ashamed. They offered um Cotton Fitzsimmons came to me, and he said, "Oh, this um no, we don't have a lot of money. We're not selling out. We're struggling, but we want to keep you." At the time, David Thompson was the highest paid player in the league. He was making seven hundred thousand a year. Cotton said that, well, we can pay you six fifty. That's a lot of money. Yeah. I was making a hundred and fifty. Yeah. When I was the second pick in the draft, I only signed for a hundred and fifty a year. So he said, We can pay you six fifty. Well, that's fine, but then this guy offers a million. When yeah. I'm the large big family that I'm from, you know, and I want to take care of them and help moms and couldn't turn it down. But I was really when I signed that contract to leave Kansas City, I was devastated. One of the saddest days of my life. I was in Boston when I signed that contract. I was so sad flying back to Kansas City because I knew in my heart I wouldn't be here. I, I was sad. Really was. Were you the first million-dollar player in the NBA? Yes, I was. What? what all right. Just give me the, the, the scoop on that. Like, What was it like to go, wow, I'm a millionaire now, the first one to have ever been a millionaire in the NBA? I was sad, I'm telling you. Yeah. When, when I was flying back from Boston – you know, back then they used to have champagne in first class. Mm-hmm. And so um, so we signed the agreement. I was going to leave. I mean, I was sad. I was excited that I would be able to take care of my mom's, buy her a home, because with my first contract, I wasn't able to do that. Be able to buy her a home, take care of my sisters and brothers. So I was excited about that. But all summer long, I, I didn't have excitement about leaving Kansas City. I really didn't. I was getting married my last year mm-hmm. that summer. Wasn't overjoyed, even though, I, you know, I was just getting married. I, I was really devastated to leave Kansas City. I really was. What was Kansas City like back then as an NBA town? What was, the, what was it like playing here? It was kind of tough. Um, the fans, the core fans that we had, they were very supportive. But we were not selling out. Mm-hmm. We were in the Western Conference Finals, and we didn't sell out every game. In the Western Conference Finals against the Houston Rockets, one step away from the NBA Finals Mm -hmm. my last year here, and we were not selling out. So it was a tough town, especially competing against the Chiefs and the Royals. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I said, though, the fans who did support, they came out and supported, but it was tough. And the Comets, too, seemingly were a big draw back then. Comets were a big draw. Yes. So it, it was kind of, we were like, man, fourth on the totem pole. Yeah, it was tough. I've heard from so many people who were around that time, and, and I was. I was born in 1977, the year you were drafted. Right? Wow. So, uh, I'm, I'm young. You're a baby. To, yeah, a little, a little bit of a baby, but not so much <laughs> anymore. I'm now in my 40s. But I've heard from so many people that said the NBA would have been successful in Kansas City had the Michael Jordan era started about five years earlier, and we got to experience Michael Jordan, what he was able to bring to the NBA. Do you agree with that, or do you disagree with that statement? I don't think it was just the Michael Jordan era. It was the NBA. What people don't realize is it's not known that there were several NBA teams close to um, going out of business. Uh, The NBA was really struggling. Our games, championship games, were tape delayed (laughs) on CBS at 11 o'clock at night. So you didn't have cable. It wasn't covered the way it is now. Michael came in at a time 
when Larry and Magic Cable was just starting, the Nike promotions with him. All of that had a lot to do with the success of the NBA. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just Michael. I don't care who you had. If Michael was playing back in the day when we played, and he did, cable TV is what really made this special because the college kids now, all of them come out as stars. They're on TV every day. Yeah. You can watch a basketball game every day of the week. That's phenomenal. We didn't have that. Like I mentioned, cable, if we had had cable, we would have been rock stars. I mean, they wouldn't have been able to pay us, though. Yeah. I mean, how would you pay Jerry West and Oscar Robinson and those guys? You wouldn't have been able – there couldn't have been a league. You wouldn't have been able to pay everybody because now you have a few guys, you know, making 30 – all of us would have had to make 30, 40 million a year. Ed and I were talking about this the other day. You know, we had, there would, Boston would have had five players who you had to pay max salaries to. Yeah. Yeah, Kevin McHale, DJ, Danny Ainge, Robert Parrish, and Larry Bird. That's unbelievable. All of them would have maxed out. Yeah. Same thing in L.A. with the Lakers. The Sixers, Andrew Tony, Maurice Cheeks, Bobby Jones, Moses Malone, Dr. J. Mm-hmm. You'd have had to max out all of those guys. Phil Ford would have been a max player. Scott Webman would have been a max player. Lacey would have been close to a max player. I would have been a max player. How would they have afforded it? TV, $3 billion TV contract that the NBA has. And that's why it's so successful. But it wasn't just Michael. He was a great, great player. But Pete Maravich, if Pete Maravich had played during the time that when, like when Michael came in, if that was Pete Maravich's instead, Mm -hmm. Pete was Michael Jackson. He couldn't, even back then, he couldn't go outside. He couldn't go anywhere. Talking about Michael, Pete Maravich was... He's the, he's the toughest player I ever played against. And I had to guard Gervin, David Thompson, Michael, World Be Free, Westfall. Pete Maravich was the toughest guy. He averaged 40 points a game for his college career, no three-point line. That's unbelievable. Are you serious? Wow. Come on. Michael, he was a great player, but come on. So if, if Maravich was the toughest player you had to go against, was he also the best player you ever had to go against? He's the best scorer that I had to guard. I don't know if he was the best player. I, I don't know who would be classified as the best player because I I, I played against Earl Monroe and Walt Frazier. And, I mean, I, those guys could score, man. George Gervin, I yeah. mean, he was phenomenal. You know, Michael, he, I mean, Bill Russell won 11 rings. I mean, Michael gets all the hype about being the greatest player ever, but, I mean, Jerry West could be in that argument. Oscar, there is no best player of all time in the NBA. I'm telling you, it's too many guys. How can you say who's the best football player of all time? You can't do that. I don't get in that. I don't have that um, debate with people. I say Michael was a great player. I guarded him for four or five years. But I'm telling you, Pete Maravich was a rock star. He was fun- He was bored with the game. Quick story, I got to tell you. Wow, that's awesome. Walt Frazier is arguably one of the greatest defensive players of all time. Mm-hmm. So Pete Maravich was leading the league in scoring. Walt Frazier was the best defensive player in the league at the time. So the one TV game that they would have on a Sunday, they build it up as the top scorer against the top defensive player, Frazier against Maravich. At Madison Square Garden, Pete scored 65. <sighs> 
<laughs> against Frazier in Madison Square Garden. Down goes Come Frazier. Come on, man. Huh? <laughs> Are you kidding? Wow. Shh. Phenomenal, man. That's unbelievable. So what was it like going against Jordan? Because there are people who will argue all day that he's the greatest basketball player of all time. You played against him. What was well, that like? Well, the first couple of years, he was a little easier to guard because he was mostly trying to shoot mid-range jumpers and post up because he was a great leaper. And so we would really um, put our bodies on him and try and make him shoot jump shots. When he developed that three-point shot, he was really, really tough to guard. But his first couple of years, when he didn't have the great jump shot, even though he scored, he found a way to score – he was a little easier to guard. The way we made it tough on Michael was, like when I played for Stan Allback, had to be in the locker room before the game started, he was like, we got to make Michael play defense. Otis needs 20 shots tonight, minimum. You know, So we would try and go back at him. And uh, Michael told me one time, he said, Otis, man, why you always holding? You always holding me, man. I said, Mike, if I didn't hold you, you'd score 50. And I'd never let you get 50 on me. And he never did because yeah. I was holding him and pushing him and banging him. When did you guys as a league realize that we got something special here with Michael Jordan? I think they we kind of knew it uh, in the first year. I knew he was special. I knew he was going to be special. But I didn't know he would be as great as he turned out to be. I really didn't. I mean, there were a lot of great players back then on every team. And – um with that Nike promotion and Spike Lee and, and the shoes and and him being the great scorer that he was and then when he started winning championships. Uh, I mean, he really was tough. And the thing that made Michael so great besides the talent and the gift that he had was that his desire to win. Um, you saw it with Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Kobe had it. Um, LeBron has it to a certain degree. That will to win that Michael had was unmatched. A lot of guys wanted to win, but, I mean, he would kill to win. And every play, offensively or defensively, that's the way he played. Yeah. Do you put LeBron in that category when you talk greatest of all time? Is LeBron on that list? Yeah, he has to be. I mean, with the things that he has accomplished, with the players that he's played with, there's no way in the world that team in Cleveland should have gone to the finals last year. And now you look, they're 2-11. and 11. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just no way they should have been in the finals. And he makes everyone better. I mean, he is 6'8", 260. He could have played in any era. And um, he, he has a gift also. I mean, he's just, there's no one that big that can move like that. And when he developed his jump shot the way he did, and he's phenomenal. Yeah, he should be mentioned as one of the greatest of all time. Who would you take, him or Jordan, if you're starting a team? I would take Michael. You would? Yeah, I would Why? take Michael. Um, I just, he he was just, he was just fierce, man. He just he just wanted to win. His will to win, I mean, he, it was unmatched. It really was. And I, I would take Michael. All right, you're back in Kansas City now with the, uh, with the Tornadoes, and you got a big-time role with the new basketball team here in town. What are you going to be doing with these guys? Everything. <laughs> except coaching, because that's Ed's job. Everything except coaching. I don't want no part of that coaching. Yeah. But uh, I am excited, especially being back in the old Kemple Arena. Uh, the Fouch brothers, Steve, and man, they've done a tremendous job with that facility. I don't know if you've been in there. It is phenomenal. And to have the opportunity to play in that arena 
it's going to be special. Um, we have a great team, great players coming back. Um, it's going to be exciting, you know, and, and we're looking forward to it. Uh, Justin Patterson, the owner, he's uh, given us the opportunity to build something special here, you know, and so we're looking forward to a great season starting in January. What What are you guys expecting, like, like crowd-wise from a standpoint? Because we always have that argument. Is Kansas City ready for another team? Do you feel like we're to that point yet that we are ready for that next team? Well, there isn't a professional basketball team here in Kansas City, if you don't count um, the KU right. Jayhawks, you know, uh, and they're in Lawrence. But uh, I think the city is ready for it. In fact, a lot of people are hoping still that an NBA team will come back to Kansas City. And what makes this so unique is that the way the arena is set up at High V is only going to seat 2,000 people, which is perfect for minor league basketball. Mm-hmm. It's going to be very intimate. It's going to be very loud. It's going to be tough to get a ticket because we're going to be selling out every game. And so we encourage the fans to get the season tickets now, and and it, it's going to be special. And I think that's a perfect amount of, of, of seats for a minor league basketball franchise. What what type of play are you expecting? Are we expecting like D-League type of talent or what what kind, what are we expecting out of this league? Uh, uh, D-League type of talent or better. Uh, all of these guys are Division One players. They've had great careers. Uh, in fact, one of our players, uh, Grant, is the leading scorer in KU basketball history. You know, so these guys can play. And what's special now is – especially the way that the G League is going to be set up, these one-and-donners, they're going to be paying a lot of money in the G League in the future. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these guys who feel like they might be able to get to the NBA, they might be able to play in the G League. In fact, one of our players last year, he's currently playing for the um, Golden State Warriors G League team. And now the opportunity to be able to make even more money playing in the G League is something special. So we're going to be getting a lot, a lot of raw talent coming in here with dreams of playing in the G League and then um, on to the NBA. But I would dare say a lot of teams, including our team, can beat a lot of those teams in the G League. Who are you most excited to see play on your team? Uh, Actually, all of our players are, are special. I mean, I'm not just saying that. We um, we have a kid, uh, Tavares. He's he's a real good player, and everyone is always talking about him. I think it's his charisma. He's a good player, but he's also the type player that we want on our team that's going to go out into the community, that's going to go to these high schools, middle schools, elementary schools, and talk to the kids about those things that we discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just about basketball. We're community-based. I'm I'm big on that. That's why I do free camps for underserved kids around the country. Myself, I will be out in the schools and, and, and talking to these kids and meeting with these kids to let them know, look, uh, it's important, but you also have an ally. Because I hate when I hear that if you're from a single-parent home that you can't make it. Well, that's not true. I'm from a single-parent home. My dad died when I was eight years old and 12 kids. And so the things that I've been able to accomplish, I don't want these kids to think that if your dad or your mom is not in the household that you can't be successful because that's not the case. I think you've done a good job of eliminating the excuses from people's lives. Oh, I can't do this or I can't do that. You're like, no, you can do that. And and so many people don't get that message anymore, you know? Right, and you have a lot of people hammering that into the kids' minds that you can't be successful unless you have two parents in the household. And that's not true. In fact, my older brother and sister who will be in town this weekend, 
they act as like uh, parents as well to us. You know, my older sister is like a mom. Even though my mom has recently passed, my older sister has always been like a mom to me. And my older brother has been a mentor and a father figure to me all of my life. So uh, you don't have to have your so-called physical parents in the home. Mm-hmm. Your sisters and brothers can take on that role. Yeah, and and I think that's cool that you're using the team kind of as an extension to do good things in the community. I mean, when we started this podcast, that was kind of like, you know, the, the, the basis of it. Let's talk to people who are doing, you know, good things through sports in, in Kansas City. And it seems like you guys are set up that way, knowing that, hey, if we can make an impact with these kids, we can create fans, but also change lives as well. Well, I'm not going to be a part of it if it's just going to be about basketball and winning games. You know, I love kids. I mean, being from a large family, I, I like to get together with my grandkids when I'm with them. I have nine grandkids, so I enjoy kids. I like um, helping kids be successful. In fact, I do something that most professional, former, or current players don't do. I give the kids at our camps, I give them my email address, and I give them my phone number because I want them to stay in touch with me. I want them to know, look, you can call me if you need financial help, if you need to just talk, whatever you need. I want you to know I'm available. And there are a lot of professional athletes won't give me their number. Right. You know, and so um, I want them to to know that you have an ally. And uh, that same thing here in the Kansas City community. We want these kids to know because a lot of them, man, you would be just devastated to know some of the circumstances that these kids are living in. And a lot of times we bring we blame the kids when we see how they react to certain situations. But you never know what a kid is going through. And I have to tell this story. And it, it, it's kind of harsh, but. There's a young girl in a city, and I won't call a city, uh, in Florida. And she has been coming to the camp for like three years. And uh, she was a senior. and But she, cute little girl, she just never smiled. Mm-hmm. So one day I asked her, I said, you know, you've been coming to the camp for three years. You never smile. What is wrong? I mean, you have a beautiful smile. She said, I smile. And so this young lady who's part of the sheriff department, she heard me talking to the girl. She came over to me afterwards and she said, Otis, you know why she doesn't smile? She said her brother raped her and her mom told her not to press charges because she don't want her son in prison. And then her uncle raped her and her mom's boyfriend. All he does is smoke marijuana all day at home. So living under those circumstances, you wonder why she's not smiling. If she goes out and do something crazy, you wonder why after going through that. So a lot of times we don't know the situations that these kids are living in, but we just blame them at school or when we see them act or react to a certain situation. What's the best story you have where you go, man, we made a difference with that kid. Um, We do a camp in Patterson, New Jersey. And, Each year, the kids who have gone through the program, they come back to talk to the kids. And Patterson, New Jersey is one of the toughest areas in the United States. I I was at a swimming one time in Patterson, New Jersey when I was younger. It was the worst YMCA. Yeah, it is. It's tough. And so a lot of these kids have gone on to graduate from college. You know, I see them on TV and I'm like, man, that kid was in the program. He's doing well. A lot of them go overseas, but they come back and talk to the other kids about education and how you can make it. I got out of here. It's really tough, but that's the joy. 
that I get when I see kids who have come through our program, they go on to be successful. And then they come back and try and work with other kids and tell them about it. That's special. Thanks, Otis. Thank you, man. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Otis Birdsong. As you can see, not only was he a superstar on the court, but he's an amazing person off the floor as well.